Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Romans chapter 8, verse number 28 is the theme for our church this year. It is all things work together for good. And we know that all things work together for good. Ultimately, the point of the passage is all things work together for good if they make us to be more like Christ. That's the end goal. And so we might face some, what we might call positive circumstances, or we might face some things that we might consider to be negative circumstances. And we all know that we all go through storms in life. And sometimes the question is, well, if I'm saved, if God loves me, why would he allow storms into my life? Why would he allow, quote unquote, bad things to happen in my life? Well, from the perspective of God and considering, you know, Romans 8, 28 and verse number 29, that if we are going to be more like Christ, then all things can work together for good. Maybe you have some health issues, but if it makes you to be more like Christ, maybe it makes you to be more patient. Maybe it makes you to consider others more than yourself and you see somebody else going through situations like that and makes you feel compassion towards them, that can make you to become more like Christ. And Romans chapter 8, verse number 29, uh, leads us into this phrase of to be conformed into the image of his son. And so if the idea is that God allows things into our lives in order to make us more like Christ, then I think one of the questions that we should ask ourselves is, what is Christ like? That kind of makes sense, right? If the goal is, all right, we're going through some circumstances and God is allowing us to go through these circumstances in order that we be more like Christ, what does it mean to be more like Christ? In fact, on our wall here, we have more like Jesus. And you see that probably every single Sunday, every single time that you're here in service. And so this is kind of the inspiration for this series. We're going to be in the Gospels over the next probably number of months. And we're going to take a look at the life of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of things in the Gospels that we're not necessarily going to cover. There's a lot of miracles. There's a lot of parables. There's a lot of passages. We're not going to cover every little detail here and there. But in particular, you know, in, in my approach to taking a look at Jesus Christ in the Gospels, the idea is, what was Jesus like? You know, we can learn some lessons about, well, Jesus can provide for our needs when we consider the feeding of the 5,000, and that's a wonderful thing, but I can't do miracles like Jesus can. And uh, some of the parables, we learn some lessons, but really we're going to focus in on Jesus and his interaction with others. So how did Jesus respond to a situation? What did Jesus do when he was here? How did Jesus give an answer to a question that was given to him? How did Jesus live? What was important to Jesus? What was not important to Jesus? Things like that. So we're going to be taking a look at the gospel. So we'll be jumping around over the next several months. We're here in the book of Luke today. We'll most likely be in the Luke, uh, book of Luke again next week. But in the weeks to come, we'll be kind of bouncing around uh, through the gospels. But just as we kind of begin to take a look at what Jesus was like and, and what it means to be more like Jesus and what are some of the effects of becoming more like Jesus, one of the things that I noticed in this passage is that to Jesus, certain things were obvious that were not obvious to other people, right? Jesus automatically assumed something 
and thought that something was natural when Joseph and Mary and others around him did not think that it would be natural. So if you're looking at verse number 49, this is after Jesus and, and his parents that were there at Passover, and, and, and Joseph and Mary assumed that they were with the caravan. Obviously, you wouldn't go on these long journeys by yourself. There's too much danger, too much risk. So they would gather a bunch of people together. They would all travel together. There's safety in numbers. And Joseph and Mary assumed that Jesus was, was with part of the caravan, maybe farther up. And so they went a day's journey. Obviously, at the end of the day, they all gathered together, and Joseph and Mary are looking for Jesus, and Jesus isn't there. So they rush back the next day. So a day's journey out, there's a day's journey back, and they're in uh, uh, Jerusalem seeking Jesus for three days. They find Jesus in the temple. They find Jesus in the temple, and they said, what are you doing here? That's basically what they're asking. What are you doing here? And Jesus' answer is very interesting in verse number 49. In verse 49, to the question of, what are you doing here? Didn't you know that your parents, Joseph and Mary, we were looking for you? He said unto them, how is it that you sought me? What do you mean you were looking for me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? He said, you were looking for me? What do you mean you were looking for me? Isn't it obvious that I would be about my father's business? Isn't it obvious that I would be here in the temple area? Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that Jesus thought it so obvious? Well, of course I would be here in the temple area. Of course I would be about the things of my father. Whereas Joseph and Mary, it seemed ludicrous that Jesus would be there in the temple area. I think one of the things that will be a result of our becoming more like Jesus is some things will become more obvious. Amen? Sometimes we can look at the Christian life and be like, I wonder why he does that. I, I wonder why she's doing that. I wonder why they talk that way. I wonder why they live that way. That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't, I don't understand why that person would go through that situation. I don't understand why they would make that decision. I don't know why they would make that kind of a sacrifice. But here is Jesus Christ and others who follow Jesus Christ would say, isn't it obvious why we would make this sacrifice? I mean, Jesus died on the cross for me. Isn't it obvious that I would make a sacrifice for Jesus Christ? Isn't that obvious? It could be totally obvious to some. And completely non-obvious to others. But when we become more like Jesus, the things that are obvious to God will become more obvious to us as well. And we'll be able to live life a little bit more clearly and stand with a little bit less confusion. Another result of becoming more like Jesus is that as you become more like him and as you make decisions following the Lord Jesus Christ, not everybody will understand. Not everybody's going to understand. Luke chapter 2, verse number 50, after Jesus gives this response, how is it that you sought me? What do you mean you were looking for me? Wist ye not, didn't you know that I would be with the things of my father in the temple area? Verse 50, and they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. His parents heard what Jesus said and said in their minds, I don't know what you're saying, but come with me. <laughs> we're going home, all right? One of the results of living the Christian life and following the Lord is that not everybody's going to understand, right? Of course, Jesus, being Jesus, knew that his parents would not understand everything that he was telling them. But the point is that Jesus understood that, but still he was going to make his decision because it was obvious that this is the right thing to do. 
And that's also going to happen in the Christian life as well. As you follow Christ and become more like Christ, certain things become more obvious. Well, of course, this is the right thing to do. Of course, this is what I should be doing. While on the other hand, also realizing not everybody's going to understand, but it's not important that they understand. It's not important in terms of my decision, whether they understand or not, this is the decision that I'm making because I'm becoming more like Christ. I see what Christ has called for me to do. That's the right thing to do. This is the obvious thing to do. So that's what I'm going to do. You might have a conversation with a spouse. You might have a conversation with a child. You might have a conversation with a friend or coworkers. And they might ask you the question, why are you doing this? What are you doing? It doesn't make sense to me. It was one of the things that I confronted uh, or, or I was confronted with uh, when I made the decision to go into full-time ministry. I had gone to college, I graduated, had a number of internships, was looking for a job, and God called me into the ministry. And so I dropped everything and I went to uh, work at my home church. I was there for a year, went off to Bible college and, you know, from there uh, kept going into ministry. Uh, but when I was in, you know, when I was in Korea, I was there for about a year and I met some of my relatives. One of the most common questions that I, I encountered was, why are you doing this? <laughs> you graduated college. You could have had a job and made this kind of money. Like, why are you doing this? And for me, it was totally obvious. It was so obvious because well, God called me. What do you want me to do? <laughs> say no to God? I can't say no to God. God called me. Of course I have to go. I understand what you're saying. I understand the situation. But what you don't understand is God called me. <laughs> and, but they couldn't put those two things together. They couldn't understand why somebody would go to college and graduate and then just leave that degree behind. It, it was unfathomable that you would graduate from college, have a potential to make X amount of money, and then turn that down. It, it didn't make any sense at all to them, but it didn't matter to me whether they understood it or not. God was the one that called me, and that was the important decision. Jesus also knew they're not going to understand. One day they're going to understand, but right now they're not going to understand. But that's not important. What's important is that I must be about my father's business, which we'll get into in just a few moments. Another aspect of becoming more like Jesus Christ, of course, is that we will grow, all right? And growing will allow us to make some of these decisions. In verse number 40, we didn't read verse number 40, but I want you to jump back to verse number 40. So in verse number 41, that's where we started. Jesus and his parents went down into Jerusalem. But verse number 40 really launches us into why would Jesus even do this in the first place? So in verse number 40, it says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So you notice here that Jesus was strong in spirit, Jesus was full of wisdom, and Jesus was, had the grace of God upon him. Now, these are all things that we want, amen? I mean, how many of us would, would say, you know what, I want more wisdom, I want more wisdom. I need more wisdom, right? I'd be like, I need more wisdom in my marriage. I need more wisdom with parenting. I need more wisdom in my job. I need more wisdom in the relationships that I have. I need more wisdom. Well, you know how you can get more wisdom? By becoming more like Jesus Christ. And then as you grow in wisdom, these things will be more obvious. Well, you might not understand, but it's very clear from the Bible and what God wants me to do that this is what I should do. You'll grow in wisdom. You'll also grow strong in spirit. You ever come across a situation where you felt like you knew what you should be doing, 
but you lack the courage to do it. Ever been in a situation like that? You have a friend, and you know you need to tell him the truth. You know that will be the best thing for him. You know that that's the loving thing to do, but you lack the courage to tell him. You ever be in a situation where you know you need to make a decision of, you know what, I need to, I need to make a decision at work because what they're doing is wrong, but I need to do what is right. But you know that if you make the right decision, there might be consequences from your coworkers, what people will say, what people will do. It might limit your future potential, this and that. Well, if I do this, if I rock the boat too much, then it might cause some problems. You ever been faced with some situations where you lack the courage to just say, hey, in my family, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is not what we're going to do here. This is not what's right. This is not what the Bible says. This does not please God. But you know it's going to cause some problems. There's all sorts of situations, I think, where we face circumstances where we know what we should be doing, but we lack the strength of spirit in order to do it. How do we get that courage and strength of spirit in order to make those clear, firm decisions that we know we need to make? We're just afraid of what might happen or afraid to actually commit to that. Well, if we become more like, uh, more like Christ, we will become strong in spirit. And of course, we will have the grace of God upon us. Of course, we need God's favor. We need God's power if we are going to do what God has called for us to do. So as we get into this, I want to see a few character traits of Christ, some examples, some things that Jesus did that we can take a look at and learn a few lessons about what was Jesus like. And as we go through situations and circumstances, we can know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow. He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So as we keep that framework in mind, all things work together for good. If we love God, if we're called according to his purpose, of course, if you're saved as well, the end result is that we'll be more like Christ. So let's take a look at what Christ was like. So first of all, we see that Jesus Christ, he commenced immediately. He started right away. In verse number 42, it says, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. So here he is 12 years old. We know that he's 12 years old. And the age here is significant because at 12 years old, like some of you might be familiar, in Jewish you know, tradition, you have the bar mitzvah, which happens at 13, right? So you have this 13 age that we're quite familiar with. He's 12 and he's right on the precipice there. I was reading that apparently the tradition was that you would bring your, your children, your male children in particular, uh, at the age of 12. So this was uh, probably the first year that Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover. Okay, so if you read verse number 41, that kind of makes sense because in verse number 41, it says, and his parents went up to Jerusalem for the feast every single year. And in verse number 42, it says, and when Jesus was 12 years old, he went to the feast. So it seems to be that Jesus's parents, Joseph and Mary, they went every single year. Every single year they went to the Passover. This year, now that Jesus is 12, they bring Jesus with him or with them and they are there at the feast. So this was likely the very first time that Jesus is in Jerusalem for Passover. And you see that this very first time that Jesus is in Jerusalem, 
is when Jesus takes the opportunity to go to the temple and spend time there. The very first time. Jesus didn't wait until he was 18 years old. He didn't wait until he was 21 years old. He didn't wait till he was done with college. He didn't wait till he had his whole life settled. The very first opportunity that he had, he took that opportunity and he went to the temple area and he sat there, he heard the teaching and he asked questions in return. And he was there most likely day after day after day while he was there. And so we learned something that's quite important for us as Christians is that we start right away, that we start immediately, that we don't wait, that we don't procrastinate, that we not delay. So that's one of the things that is important here in our church about things like kids ministries and youth ministries. It's important for us as a church, as believers, to teach our children and the young ones of our church that you don't have to wait to start serving God. You can and should start serving God today. Amen? You should start immediately. You don't have to wait until you're independent and have a job to serve God. You should start today. Now, that might mean something simple as inviting your friends to come to church. And we've had a number of our kids invite their friends, and friends come, and I'll ask, you know, how did you find our church? Or I'll ask the parents, how did you find your way here? Oh, well, my child is schoolmates with this child who goes to your church, and all sorts of things like that. That's great, and that's wonderful, and that's an opportunity for kids to start at a young age. I think it's important also for teenagers to get involved in the ministry as well. For those that are in the youth group, not to wait until, well, I'll, when, when I get to 18 or when I graduate college, then I'll begin serving in the ministry. I'll begin to get involved with this ministry or that ministry. I think it's important as teenagers to get involved early. When I was a teenager at our church, we would have all sorts of different things. We would do things like we'd have a teen night. So on a Sunday night service, we would have the teenagers of the church do all of the public ministry things. Uh, the, the piano playing was done by a teenager. The song leading was done by a teenager. The offering was taken by a teenager, collected by adults to make sure that nothing happened to it. But we had the teenagers collecting the offering. We had the teenagers giving the announcements. We had teenagers doing the preaching. The whole service was teenagers getting involved. Now, why would we do that? Why would we do that? Well, one of the reasons why we did that, I think so, was to help teenagers understand, hey, you could do this today, or you could be involved in some way today, and to encourage parents and families, to encourage their kids also to get involved. We had like a teen choir, we would go out teen soul winning, we would go out to teen activities, we would do all sorts of things, because it was important for young people to learn, you don't have to wait, you should start right away. And you see that as soon as God has called certain individuals in the Bible, immediately they said, all right, this is what God wants us to do. Let's go. So in uh, Mark chapter number one, this is Jesus. He's calling the disciples. And he says in verse number 17, that Jesus said unto them, come ye after me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Verse number 18 says, this is Peter and Andrew. And straightway, they forsook their nets and followed him. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. Peter and Andrew immediately said, all right, let's go. And they went, they forsook their nets. They left their nets behind. They were on the job, if you will. And immediately they dropped everything and they just went. Verse number 19. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. 
So you see that as soon as Jesus called to Peter and Andrew and later James and John, immediately they followed him because that's the natural thing to do, right? That's the obvious thing to do. That's what Christ did. Christ said, all right, it's my time. All right, I'm going to go. This is time for me to begin the public ministry. It's time for me to be about the things of God. It's time for me to be sacrificed on the cross. And whenever it was time, he went. And that's what you see with the disciples of Jesus Christ as well. Acts chapter number 16. Here is Peter and Silas and Timothy. They're desiring to find out where should we go next in ministry, right? I think a lot of people, you know, we, we encounter the situation a lot. All right, I'm at a crossroads now. What do I do? Which way do I go? What decision do I make? Should I take this job? Should I take that job? Should I make this decision in, in this relationship? Should I make that decision? What should I do with my finances? All sorts of decisions. Well, here, Paul is trying to figure out where to go, and it's pretty clear. God is saying, no, I don't want you to go here. I don't want you to go there. And he's trying different things, and it's just nothing's happening. Well, in verse number 10, it says that they had gotten, uh, Paul had a dream. And in verse number 10, it says, And after I had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called for us to preach the gospel unto them. You notice that word immediately. Immediately we endeavored. As soon as I knew this is what God wants me to do, I'm going to go. So that's what Jesus Christ did. As soon as he knew this is what I need to do, I'm going to go. So that's what Jesus Christ did. The second character trait that we see of Christ is that he continued into overtime. So in verse number 43, it says, When they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to be in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among the kinfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. So there you see that the Bible says when they had fulfilled the days. So they had come to, Jesus, uh, they had come to Jerusalem with Jesus during Passover. So they had come for Passover. There were a number of feasts in the Old Testament that the Bible said that every male was supposed to attend. One of them was Passover. One of them was the Feast of Pentecost, and one of them was the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's three of them, and the males were supposed to come and participate in this feast every single year. Well, after time, it kind of became a little bit difficult, as you can imagine, every single year traveling. And as we know, just taking a look at this passage, it wasn't like they just took a 30-minute drive over and showed up. This would have been a multiple-day journey just to get to Jerusalem, fraught with danger. It definitely would have been difficult. And this isn't the day where you have Airbnb and Expedia and you can just book things and, you know, and show up and everything's there. I mean, it was definitely difficult to travel. As we knew, when Jesus was born, there was no room for them in the end. Right? You could easily show up and there's no room for you anywhere. You had to figure it out. So anyway, they were supposed to show up. So they were supposed to go for these three, but most people, really, if they were serious, they just showed up for the one. They, they just showed up for Passover. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus this time would have gone to this Passover. So they would have been there for, a, they would have traveled for a couple of days. So it might have been about three or four days. They're traveling in order to get to Jerusalem. Just to give you a frame of reference, before I moved to California, I lived in New Jersey. 
And when I traveled here, we, we took a few pit stops along the way. But basically, if you want to drive across the country, it's about a four days journey, okay? So if you want to picture what it would mean for Jesus and Joseph and Mary to go from where they lived up in Nazareth in Galilee down to Jerusalem, a three to four day journey. Imagine every year driving from, from California to New Jersey and back every single year, three times a year. You could imagine that that would get old pretty quickly, right? So of course you can imagine, well, let's not do this three times a year, but we're pretty serious about it. Maybe we could do it once a year. Even once a year, if you met somebody who said, yeah, I'm driving to New Jersey, you would say, again? You're doing this again? Why don't you just take a year off? No, this is what we do. This is the right thing to do. We're going. So that's, that's the uh, equivalent of what's going on. So they would have spent about three to four days traveling to Jerusalem. When they get to Jerusalem, they participate in the Passover. After the Passover day, there's actually a seven-day feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you would have had, when we're talking about they fulfilled the days, and they're, they're talking about Passover, what it's talking about is there's a Passover day, but then there's also a Passover period. There's a seven-day period afterward of unleavened bread. So there's an eight-day period in which they're participating in this feast. So every year, Joseph and Mary would spend about three to four days traveling to Jerusalem. Now, it's only about 80 miles, but they didn't have cars, they didn't have air conditioning, they didn't have the luxuries that we do. Many of them probably would have had to walk the entire journey. So you can imagine a couple days journey, three to four days in Jerusalem. They're there for eight days. And then on the journey back, it's another three to four days. So easily this would be two weeks, perhaps even a little bit more. Every single year. So you can definitely imagine that when it says, when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, you can imagine that as soon as the feast is over, they're ready to get back home, right? I mean, that would make sense. We would understand that. We would probably think exactly the same thing. All right, we got to get back because I got to get to work. I got to start providing, you know, we saved up for this two-week journey, and I got to begin saving up again. And so you could imagine this is the pattern every single year. We're serious. We want to do what God says, but also we, we got to survive. We got we to make it. And so they're ready to get back. So that's, that's Joseph and Mary's attitude. Easily, that would be you know, the mentality that you and I probably would have. So this is a pretty full obligation done every single year. Now, this time, Jesus stays in Jerusalem. Joseph and Mary go one day's journey. One day's journey out. They're assuming that Jesus is part of this huge caravan. Everybody's all together. They have family and relatives and acquaintances, people from the city. They just assume, just like you here at church, if you don't know where your child is, you just assume my child must be with the other children. I don't see or hear my child, but that must be where they are, okay? So that's probably what Joseph and Mary thought. Well, that he was with the children earlier, he must be with them right now. I'm sure he's with, you know, Billy and Bobby and Johnny or whatever. And so they went a day's journey and they found Billy and Bobby and Johnny. Hey, have you seen Jesus? No, we haven't seen, he wasn't with us all day. We haven't seen him. Really? 
Johnny, have you seen Jesus? No, we were all together. We haven't seen Jesus. And it goes through the whole crowd. Jesus isn't there. Uh, uh-oh. So they go back. They're one day's journey out. They can't go at night. It's way too dangerous. So they spend the night. They wake up. They go back to Jerusalem and search for Jesus for three days. Okay? Imagine your 12-year-old lost in the big city for, this is now day five, right? One day journey out, one day journey back, three days searching in Jerusalem, five days. Your child is lost in Jerusalem, five days, and they find him in the temple area. So they go, you can imagine, if you go on this long journey, you're driving to New Jersey, you're there for eight days, you drive one day back before realizing your child isn't there, you wake up the next day, you drive one day back, you're looking through all of New Jersey and find your child there after five additional days. So eight days, three days travel at the beginning, eight days, five days, you can imagine the mindset of Joseph and Mary of Jesus. What are you doing here? <laughs> Why are you still here? We got to go home. Remember Jesus's response though? Remember Jesus's response? Jesus's response was, how is it that you sought me? Wish ye not that I must be about my father's business? So Joseph and Mary's mindset is, well, we're supposed to be here for Passover. We're supposed to be here for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're supposed to be here for eight days. We were here for eight days. Now we can go. Let's go. Jesus' mentality, though, was, I'm supposed to be here for Passover. I'm supposed to be here for Unleavened Bread. But I'm not done here. This is a totally different mindset. See, the parents' mentality was, all right, what are the things we're supposed to do? Check, check, check. All right, I'm done. I'm out of here. Jesus' mentality, though, was, my job's not done here. I got more to do. I got more to do. I've got something else that I've got to be involved with. And he was willing to spend that extra time that was necessary in order to do what he was called to do. Jesus was not so eager to get back home because there was something to do, and he was willing to spend the extra time in order to do it. He continued into overtime. And the reason why he was willing to go into overtime was because he was committed to the Father. He was committed to his Father. We saw that in his response. Wist he not that I must be about my Father's business? There's a word there that I think is very important. How is it that you sought me? Wist he not that I must? be about my father's business. Wist ye not, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? There was something that he had to do, and the thing that he had to do was his father's business. When you take a look at the Gospels, you see a number of I must that Jesus says, that he speaks about himself. Luke chapter 4, verse 43, he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. Jesus said, here is something that I must do. I have to do this thing. I have to preach the gospel, and I have to preach it in other cities. I have to do that. I must do this thing. Luke chapter 19, verse number 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. Today, Zacchaeus, 
I see what you've done. I know that you have repented of your sins. I know that you have made those changes. I must spend some time with you. I am here to help you, to spend time with you, to give you the gospel. John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I must be lifted up. I must be crucified. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, he says, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. So Jesus had to, I must be crucified. I must also rise again the third day. Praise the Lord for that. That Jesus said, I must be crucified, but I'm also going to rise again the third day for our salvation. So here is Jesus saying, at the age of 12, wist ye not, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? So the I musts of life determine whether we will be more like Jesus or not. So just in life in general, let me ask you this. What are the I musts in your life? These are the things that I must do. Now, a lot of them are basic, obvious, simple things. I must go to work, right? That's an I must. You got to go to work. You got to provide for yourself. You got to pay for housing. You got to pay for food. You got to pay for provisions. So you have to go to work, right? You have to go to work. You have to do some other things. You have to run some errands. You have to go to the store and go shopping. You have to buy groceries. You have to buy provisions. You have to go do different things. Just take care of basic life. You have to call in a plumber to take care of that issue that's there. All of those things. You've got some I musts in life, some basic things that if we don't do these things, we're really not surviving, right? If you don't work, you don't buy groceries, you don't take care of those things, you're not even going to survive, right? So of course, these are the basic I must of life. But then there are other non-negotiable I musts in life that we, we might have. There are some things that we might say, uh, yeah, if I don't do this, I might not die physically, but inside I would probably die, <laughs> right? Like if you're a huge, I don't know, LA Rams fan or something, you're a big sports fan, I must watch this game, right? I have to watch the game. I'm going to record it or I'm going to rearrange my whole schedule in order to watch this game, right? You might know some sports fanatics that are like that. They're like, I have to watch this game. I'm going to rearrange everything in order to participate with this. You might have some other I must in life. You might have some things like I must spend time with this person. If you're dating, I, I need to go on a date. If you're married, I'm gonna, I need to spend time with my, my wife or if you're a wife, husband, right? I must spend some time with my kids. You've got some of these, these things as well that are, of course, very vital and important. There are some other things that for people are musts, right? I must have a cup of coffee today, okay? I must have that. I need it, all right? If I don't, you know, it's gonna, life's gonna be rough today, right? You have some I musts. There are some things that are I must, you go looking for them. They're kind of necessary, at least in your mind, in your life. Some of these things, if you don't do it, you'll probably literally die. For other things, though, you've made it an I must, right? There's no legal obligation to you, for you to do that. There's no survival component to it, but I must do this. I have to do this. You could get away with a less paying job, but I must do this job because I must earn this kind of money. Right? You could do, get away with doing something else, but I must do that. There are all sorts of things like this. 
that are important in life and important personally to us. But if we're going to be like Jesus, and if all things are going to work together for good to them, for us, the I must that we have in our lives have got to line up with the I must of Jesus. Does that make sense? The I must of the word of God have got to be the I must in my life. Amen? Does that make sense? I mean, this has to make sense. We can't go any further if this doesn't make sense because how can we look at the Bible and say all things are going to work together for good if I don't think that what God says is important in my life? If God says purity is important in my life and I say, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but that's not important to me, how can we take this command and throw it aside but also claim the principle of all things work together for good because it's going to make me more like Jesus when of course Jesus is holy but I'm living a life that's leading away from holiness. Does that make sense? Of course it makes sense that if we're going to be more like Jesus and if things are going to work out together for good, the I must of my life have to line up with the I must of God. The I must of this is what I have to do in my life has to be what God says, yeah, this is what you have to do. You have to do this. You have to be involved there. You have to go do that. You have to spend time with your husband or wife. You have to spend time raising your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You have to forsake not the gathering of yourselves together as a man or a son is. You have to grow in holiness. You have to become more like Christ. Uh, John chapter 9 verse number 4 says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. You see Jesus saying, I have to do what God has called for me to do. I have to do that. This goes back into when we saw earlier that Jesus uh, committed to going into overtime, right? Why would Jesus commit to going to overtime, right? There's two kinds of jobs that generally are there in life, right? You have an hourly job and you have a salary job, right? An hourly job, you are paid by the hour. Makes sense, right? I'm paying you to work this job for eight hours, right? There's an hourly job, right? Some of you might be hourly, right? You clock in, when you're done, you clock out, right? Maybe you go to Starbucks, you're there, your schedule is from, I don't know, six in the morning till noon, all right? You clock in, when it hits noon, all right, I'm done. You guys have a good day. Somebody else comes in, takes over your shift, and you're out, right? There's an hourly job. You're paid to do a job for a certain amount of time. Then you have a salary job, all right? Salary job is a different kind of a job. A salary job, and I, you know, there's some fuzziness here, but in essence, the idea of a salary job is, I'm not paying you to be here for eight hours. I'm paying you to finish the job, okay? Now, the job might take 10 hours. The job might take six hours. But in essence, I'm paying you to finish a job, right? That's the idea. So a lot of times you'll see salary job people spend more than eight hours in a day. They might spend some time working at home. You might see them, you know, answering emails early in the morning before they even get to work and stuff like that. Why? Because it is their job to finish the job, right? So that's their kind of a job. Well, some Christians approach the Christian life like this is an hourly job. I show up to church, I clock out, I'm done, I go home, I'm finished. But a Christian, though, that is following in the footsteps of Christ will understand, all right, I'm not here just to punch in hours. I'm here to do a job. 
right? I'm here to do a job, and that job might mean something here on the church property. The job might mean being done at home. The job might mean being done at work, all of those things. Now, how could that possibly be true? How could it be true that God is a job for me when I leave the church building? Well, if you look at the commands of Jesus Christ and, and, and the epistles in the New Testament, a lot of those commands were for people when they were not at church, when they were home. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. Amen? Right? Wives, you want your husbands to love you even as Christ loved the church. Now, here on the church property, nobody would dare <laughs> not love their wife and not, you know, be nice and everything. It's when we go home that sometimes the negativity can come out. The criticisms can come out. All of that can come out when we're at home. As soon as you close the door, you're driving out of the parking lot. Why did you have to say that thing? You know, and, you know that kind of stuff. That could definitely happen. Now, those commands are for, all right, when you leave the property, this command doesn't stay here. It goes with you. Your job is to love your wife, even as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. We have all of these commands about workers and servants and all of these sorts of things. And, and when you become more like Christ, this is important. He said, we see not that I must be about my father's business. So the attitude of Jesus Christ, God the Son, was the Father's business is my business, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, my Father's business is my business, right? In essence, you could think of it as, it's a family business, right? My Father's business is my business. When you get saved, you are born into the family of God. Being born into the family of God then therefore means your father's business is your business. God's business is your business. The things of God are now your things. It's not the church's business. That's my business. Because the church is God's business. Right? So when we come to church, it's not like, what are all of those people doing? It's like, wait, wait, wait. This is God's business. God is my heavenly father. I'm a son or I'm a daughter. Therefore, his business is my business. Hey, let's go do something. Hey, let's take care of this thing. Hey, let's work on this area. It's not just another Christian's business. It's my business. It's not just the pastor's business. It's my business. Because if we're saved, we are born into the family of God. Amen? Okay, so God's business is our business. That's the way that Jesus approached living and life. That's why he was in the temple area. That's why when the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was over, others left, but Jesus stayed. Why? Because he had that mentality, God's business is my business. The things of God are, are my things. The last area that we see Jesus participating in and a character trait of Jesus Christ is that he chose obedience. In verse number 51, it says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. So we see that Jesus, after he is found by Joseph and Mary, they take him home. The Bible says that he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. So, first of all, this clarifies whether Jesus was there in Jerusalem out of rebellion. Of course he wasn't, we know that. But again, we see a reiteration of that, that he was subject unto them, that he obeyed and listened to Joseph and to Mary. 
So we see that trait of Jesus Christ. But also we see this very specific, clear explanation that Jesus was subject unto Joseph and Mary. He followed them, he honored them, and he obeyed them. But we've got to think about this for just a second. Humanly speaking, of course, we know that Jesus was 12, but more generally speaking, we know that Jesus has no beginning, right? We know that Jesus is more powerful than Joseph and Mary. We know that Jesus is smarter than Joseph and Mary. We know that Jesus knows more things. We know that Jesus is wiser than all of them. In every single way, shape, and form, Jesus was better than Mary and Joseph, right? Right? Because he's God, right? Smarter, he's been around longer, more power, all of these things. But Jesus, the Bible says, was subject unto Joseph and Mary. This is a very uh, difficult concept for us as human beings because we think if I'm smarter than you, I get to tell you what to do. Or if I'm better than you, I get to tell you what to do, right? We think about it in a corporation, a business, all of these different sorts of things. But again, some of the not obvious things in life become more obvious when we see Jesus Christ, right? For instance, the idea and concept of authority matters to God. Amen? Authority matters. Meaning, there is a set authority that is given, and God expects us to submit and to obey our authorities. Amen? As long as they don't conflict with, you know, the commands of God, right? We understand that. But in general, God expects us to submit to our authorities. Even if I'm smarter than my authority, God wants me to obey my authority. Amen? Even if my way is better than my authority's way, if ultimately my authority tells me this is what I want you to do, God wants us to do that. Amen? Now, that's not easy for us to take because we're humans. But that's not God's way. God said, Jesus, who knew way better than Joseph or Mary in anything, Jesus could have corrected Joseph and Mary in everything. No, 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 you're, you're, not doing you're not correcting me the right way. This is how you should correct me. This is how you should parrot. This is how you should do your job. He, he could have did, did all of that, but instead he was subject unto them. It's an interesting idea and concept because in Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5, the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. All right. Now we get to see the mind, of the thinking of Jesus Christ. How did Jesus think? Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So Jesus, being God, said I am equal to God. God the Son is equal to God the Father. That's what that's saying. Verse number seven. But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So here is Jesus, God the Son, humbling himself and submitting himself under God the Father, even though he was every bit God the Father's equal, which makes sense, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all God, they're all equal. 
right? You don't have one that is better than the other. But what you do find is that God the Son willingly submits himself unto God the Father. They are equals, but he submits himself to God the Father. And we see that in Luke chapter 22, verse number 42, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He says, God the Father, as God the Son, I'm praying to you, God the Father, this is not what I want. But it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing to us? What's amazing to us is that God the Father, God the Son, are equal, and yet one of them, God the Son, willingly submitted himself unto the other. That's the mind of Christ. If we grow to be more like Christ, that's going to be our mentality. The opposite is also going to be true. We see that husbands, we are to love our wives even as Christ loved the church. So Christ is the head of the church, but Christ gave himself for the church. So there's another way in which when we become more like Christ, we submit ourselves to our authority. If we become more like Christ, if we are the one in authority, we give ourselves and sacrifice ourselves for those that are under us. That, that's the example of Jesus Christ. So the, again, the whole idea of this passage, and really, you know, in many ways, so many of the lessons that we learn from the Gospels is, how can we become more like Christ? What does it mean to be more like Christ? What was Jesus Christ like? Well, we see that he started right away. We saw that he was willing, you know what, if a job wasn't done, all right, I'm willing to spend a little bit more time, I'm willing to go into overtime because God the Father's business is my business. And he submitted himself unto the authority that was given to him. So let's consider this idea of all things work together for good if we are conformed to the image of his son, conformed to this image that we just saw here today.